So we're starting on, on a, a series of studies on the lost meanings of the of the seventh day, the lost meaning uh, in the singular in my book, but the lost meanings here. Of course, there are lost meanings. Uh, there was a reason to focus on one one thing, thing uh, one uh, particular thing in that book project, but but we'll see. We hopefully we will get to discuss that at some at some at some point in in our journey. So uh, we'll start here today. I will. Uh, we'll have a few other voices uh, to introduce our topic here, uh, and uh, Brad Cole will lead us in prayer. So let's pray first. Dear Father, as we uh, discuss a world and the problems that we see in our world, a world that is um, largely separated from the knowledge of who you are, your goodness, and your love, please help us to begin to grapple with this and also, also to understand how we can know you in this world. Amen. Amen. Okay, with me here I have uh, Roger McQuiston. Uh, who has promised to share a few minutes on uh, uh, the topic, uh, our first topic here, the world as we find it, or the world as I find it. Uh, and uh, this will be the world as Roger finds it. Uh, so uh, let me see if I can get you hooked up with this thing okay. here. Uh, three minutes. I'm going to cover five years of exploration and research and interest. Here's how I see the world today looking at the past, the present, and the future. I see that in the past, we've had dramatic change. Dramatic change in that we've seen tremendous changes in energy, technology, and monetary systems. Now, in addition to that, this dramatic change has been because of abundant resources, natural, and by a population that has been pretty stable. So as a result of these factors, we have seen a world of great surplus, which means we have had great economical growth, which has led to stability, basically, a few wards and so forth, and cohesion among society. Now, that all began to change, and it is changing now, and I see at the present we are at a tipping point. And the reason for that is that we are seeing now a population explosion. And this really has happened over the last 50 years. When I was in high school, in the 50s, the population of the world was 2.5 billion. Today, October 31, 7 billion. In my lifetime, it has shot up exponentially and projected to go to 10 billion by 2050. So, big game changer, tipping point. The other is resource implosion. We live in a finite world, and yet we are growing and using it um, exponentially. Metals, water, soil, um, energy, it goes on and on. But today I'd like to just look at one factor that is dramatically impacting the world as I see it, and that's in the area of 
oil, which in 1859, first oil well was dug, and in the last, from about 1930, the use of oil has exponentially exploded right along with population. And many feel that the reason why we've seen such an exp exponential growth in population is because of the high uh, density of oil. Now, in 2006, the International Energy Agency, which is the international organization that provides data to businesses and governments, said that oil production peaked in 2006. So there basically is the tipping point. Because oil, crude oil, is the lifeblood of Western civilization, when you think about it. Everything is tied, basically, to fossil fuel, and primarily to crude oil, when it comes to transportation, farming, manufacturing, uh, air, uh, um, pesticides, medical supplies, plastics, crude oil is the foundation. Now, in 2006 and in 1970, production of oil in the United States peaked at about 10 million barrels a day, and now we're down to about 5 million barrels a day that we produce. The rest is all being imported. Now, <clears throat> they are predicting that oil production will deplete at about 4% per year, and that consumption will increase at about 4% a year. So it means a, an 8% spread between availability and demand, supply and demand. So what does that lead to? It leads to shortages. And this leads to economic contraction. This is how I see it. This leads to instability, which leads to chaos. It's not a very positive picture, but that's how I see it after the studies that I've been doing. People will disagree with this, I'm sure, but one thing you cannot disagree with is that oil, fossil fuel, is a finite source on which civilization depends and at some point, they will never run out, but the amount of oil we'll be able to get for the amount of energy we put in, will be, the margin will be so slim that it will drive the price of energy sky high, which is going to affect, once again, our contraction, instability, and chaos. Now, how much time do I have left? Time is up? Okay, just want to say one other thing. I think it's going to impact individuals, all of us, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and it's going to affect the church, the way we do ministry, and health care. I think business as usual is over, and we have major changes that we need to address. Thank you very much. Uh, we're, we're going uh, just uh, just to hold it there.
these are these are focal images, and Roger has given us a focal image for the world as he sees it, focusing on 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 the role of of oil and the role and and, and the, the increasing this discrepancy between availability and demand, and what that will mean. Uh, in our world, and I think you gave an extremely succinct and 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 easy to easy to follow uh, 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 presentation picture of the situation. Now we'll have uh, Melissa Broughton, who is uh, from La Sierra University, and, and she has presented to us before. She will give her uh, the world as I see it. In contrast to a global perspective, I'm going to give you just a microcosmic perspective of the world as I see it. And that is, I'm going to talk to you about a small world, the small world of the Inland Empire. Moving to the Inland Empire from upstate New York has presented many challenges for me, some more welcome than others. I am fascinated by Southern California's landscapes, the romantic appeal of its mixed terrains of desert, mountain, and coast, the brilliant color of lupine and poppies, its more cultivated areas of farmlands, botanical gardens, and citrus groves. As much as I delight in these aspects of Southern California, I am at the same time sobered, saddened, and even horrified to see the other side, the subcultures that have failed to assimilate and instead subsist in barrios, bicycling to work each day to make less than minimum wage, the dozen or so day laborers who wait patiently on sidewalks outside of Home Depot, the children who are not attended to, the dogs who run homeless in the streets, and those who end up dead on freeways, the teenage boy found guilty for the murder of his 17-year-old friend whose charred remains were found in his backyard. I wonder how those who care can hold on to hope with such dismal prospects as I see mothers trudging hot pavement with shoeless children. One newly divorced mother, my neighbor, who in a single thoughtless moment tries to beat a train and loses, throwing her child off the tracks at the last minute. Do we simply shrug our shoulders, blame it on her tattoos, her possible drug use, feel relieved that we were in a better pool of survival? This way of dealing with tragedy may be preferable to that of obsessing over each new tragedy that we see. Complacency can be a good shield. How is one to respond to Southern California's devastation in the midst of seeking its beauty? How do we make sense of the stark lines of difference between rich and poor? What choices are at our disposal? How are we as Christians supposed to deal with it all? My escapist attitude compels me, at times, to close my eyes and pretend that somehow the problems in the Inland Empire disappear once I can no longer see them. I long to think only of the beautiful, to find the fastest wormhole to a perfect world. I confess at times, either mentally or physically, I want to go AWOL. But then I look out my window and see the sweeper, about five feet tall with dark hair and eyes, wearing a knee-length floral house dress. Starting religiously at five o'clock each morning, she sweeps the curb, moving up the street on one side and down on the other. I have seen her sweep through an entire morning. When she sees me, she smiles and waves. She seems to love this simple act of cleaning up her world, doing what she can to give beauty back to the world, doing what she can to love her world. A poem by Mary Oliver offers a similar response to the dialectic of beauty and devastation. 
This poem is called Messenger. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. We need to find the courage to face this world and love it, to stand still and be astonished with our arms open. We can dare to be messengers of rejoicing to those who need it. Let's stay in the trenches. Thank you very much to Melissa. And, uh, and now we will hear a third uh, uh, focal image from uh, Dorothy Cole. The world as I find it. This can be no general statement. It's specific to me and to my world. It has to be, because everything that I see is filtered through my brain, my upbringing, my fears, my hopes. I cannot speak for the Turkish earthquake survivor, the woman in Libya, or the drug addict in San Bernardino. I can only speak about my world, my world as a mother, as a wife, as a physician who sees patients with degenerative diseases. My world has been influenced to some degree by the books I've read, the news I watch, the friends I've been with. Most importantly, perhaps, my world has been influenced by my recent study of the Bible in a discovery of a God, the Almighty God, Creator, who came into the womb of one of his own creatures, who lived the life of a servant and who died the death of a common criminal. And he did this to heal my world, your world. So what about the world as I find it? I find it perplexing. I see good, and it's personified in Jesus' life and his statements. It's an overwhelming kind of good. It's almost too good to be realistic, the kind of good that doesn't make sense in our world, for turning the other cheek just doesn't make sense in this world. But it's beautiful, it's desirable, it's tender, it is perfect. I also see the opposite, the destructive side of the enemy, selfishness, power hunger, greed, deception, lies, and even brutal force. This one seems overwhelming. The mainstream of history, obvious as well as subtle. I see it in history books, in the news, in the people I've met, and sadly, 
partly also in myself. I see a war between those two sides. We're told that there's an alleged winner in this war, Jesus Christ. But I do not yet see an actual winner in this world as I find it. I find the world very busy, planned out to the minute, too preoccupied to recognize the issues in the battle, the nature of the contenders, and unclear to what's at stake, that is the desolation of this world, the desolation of humanity. I see an absence of understanding what constitutes good, the Jesus kind of good. I see a lack, a gaping hole. It can only be filled by community. A community of human beings who take the state of this world seriously enough to go all the way, as Jesus went all the way. How else can people know God today? How else can they know what good really means? Thank you to, uh, to uh, Roger and to Melissa and to Dorothy who uh, were willing to share with us uh, a perspective on the world as, uh, as they find it. Uh, and we, uh, of course, using this topic to introduce the subject of the Sabbath, uh, the question is, does the Sabbath have anything to offer the world that you find, the world that you find, is the Sabbath a, a, a resource? Is it, a, is it relevant to, to the world as we find it? And that is what we wish to, to, uh, to be uh, exploring. Uh, and uh, uh, I think we resonate with Roger, and I, I have also been looking at some of those as, uh, data, the, the enormous increase in the world population that we are increasingly facing a a crowded world. And so that seems to be a, 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 a sort of a non, a, a non-deniable, non-gainsayable uh, datum about the world and that the population growth has been enormous uh, uh, in the last uh, century especially. And then uh, I did find these... Uh, this, uh, things here on, on MSNBC, and I want to see if I can access it here and show you how they represented it. Maybe some of you have seen it already. Can you see this? I think it projects okay. Uh, uh, it begins here. They show it from 1950 only, and then they show it by increments of decades to see not only uh, how the population has grown, but where it has grown. So where where are they? Uh, where is everybody? <laughs> where do they live? <laughs> you know, I come from a country with four million people, four and a half million people. You know, Norway doesn't even exist. You know, in the sort of world in the population economy of the world, They're, that's a non-entity practically. Uh, so, uh, so the question again is: Is the Sabbath relevant to this kind of world? And this kind of population distribution that we have here, such an overwhelming concentration in, in, in Asia and, and to some extent in, in Africa, 
and and projections that these these uh, differences are actually going to be even larger uh, in the next uh, you know within the next 50 years so you know and you can think of uh, you can think of yourself we can think of ourselves as a seventh day adventist community uh, a group of 15 million people uh, what sort of role could one play uh, what sort of mission strategy will one need to have if we are going to, uh, if that this community is going to play uh, um, play a role or make a difference in 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 this kind of this kind of a world? Um, so uh, uh, you can access this from from uh, this slide if you just download it. Now, <clears throat> accompanying this assessment in uh, in. Uh, on one of these internet, uh, 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 this was on MSNBC too, where they also uh, had interviewed seven people who talked about the world as they find it. And uh, the world they, uh, that, or the things, the points that they were highlighting here, I think we recognize, uh, we recognize some of it, certainly Roger's Roger's point would be there. There is uh, Paul Ehrlich, uh, Ehrlich, who is one of the leading environmentalists of the 20th century and still alive. He talks about food shortage, damage to the environment. Then there is one person who talks about technology, put that up there. Uh, another person who is an actress here in California, uh, talked about women's rights and gender inequality. And then climate change, aging, Aging, not not uh, not uh, uh, for the generation old now, but most of the people alive today are below thirty. The question is, what will happen to the world when they are, you know, when they are above sixty, when they are seventy, when those billions, you know, because then the world will have an aid, a population with a, a you know of people who are uh, older uh, in of a proportion to the world population that is completely unprecedented. No, so that was the challenge there. Then there is a, uh, the water resources, the, the, again, which is another finite, finite resource, and then energy, of course, which is another finite resource. Or you could say maybe there are ways to make energy an infinite resource. Of, of, of course, some people who, do, uh, who are very optimistic in terms of technology think that 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 could could uh, would not be such a major concern. Anyway, this uh, you see, I think there is there could be quite a bit of convergence between the world as we find it and the world as as they find it, as it were. Harvey, the agriculturists tell us can feed fifty billion people without exploiting resources. Why is there problems? Now, you can't feed 50 billion and eat meat. You can't feed 50 billion, raise tobacco and alcohol. You can't raise, feed 50 billion with non-nutritious, lots of sugar, and so forth. So food-wise, we could be okay. You know, even further population growth would not be a threat food-wise. Food-wise. The problem isn't food. No. It's human greed. It, it is the way we do it. 
Okay, so we have, you know, we have some thoughts on, on, on this and, and, and let's see, let's go on. Now, I want to uh, specify a few things here and, and, and uh, maybe that would, would, uh, would resonate with you. I want to, uh, to specify uh, the uh, topics in terms of alienation, that we do find states of alienation here. Uh, uh, alien, alienation from the earth, alienation of human from non-human creation, alienation from each other, from one another. Uh, and I'd like to make a point, if time permits, on, on alienation from the Jews and then also uh, how we relate to God. And that would be back uh, partly to Melissa, what she was saying, and, and to Dorothy's point too. Uh, and of course, we're just going to be saying these things by way of, 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 of slight introduction. Now, on alienation from the earth, and maybe maybe that is broadly related to to the the sort of lack of appreciation for for the for finitude. Uh, I put in two names here. I put in the name of Origen, who is one of the early Christian thinkers, and I put in the name of the philosoph French philosopher Descartes, uh, who I who could be seen to be people who epitomize a way of thinking that has alienated human beings from the earth. Because, because none of these people, Origen as a Christian who was influenced by Plato, and Descartes as a sort of new, he's, he's the sort of gate, gatekeeper to modern philosophy. None of these people think that human life, uh, that human that human identity uh, has a physical component. All of them think that real life is immaterial life. Real life is not, you know, bound to any kind of materiality. So there is a kind of, you're coming into this world, even, even the Christian paradigm, even the Christian paradigm through origin comes into this world as with the idea that we'd rather get rid of it that the world is kind of a dispensable commodity. You could do without it. You could, be a, you could be a human being without it. And eventually, Origen, he, he expresses the hope that eventually material existence will cease to exist and you will kind of be home, home free. You know, we are stuck now in the world. We're stuck with finitude. We're stuck with finite resources. And that's part of material existence. So you have to kind of get rid of material existence. And that has kind of been bedeviled. That has kind of bedeviled Christian thought throughout uh, the ages. And Descartes, he just gives it a new lease on life. He is actually quite, uh, quite competent in, in his grasp of the world. But he is basically renewing what we call the dualist outlook. The dualist outlook that there is body and there is soul. And what is it that really matters? It is the, the thinking self, you know, the uh, I think, therefore I am. And Descartes, to, <coughs> to offend Brad and Dorothy, who are neurologists, Descartes thinks without his brain, you know. The, he doesn't need the brain for thinking. He is, the, the thinking self is immaterial. It doesn't need, uh, it has no neurological sort of uh, base. So, <clears throat> so that's, that's, of course, terrible. <laughs> it couldn't be worse. Uh, so there is an alienation from the earth. And I just wanted to highlight this, this point here, Wendell Berry, who, 
who I hope we will hear from again uh, 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 as we uh, study the Sabbath, because Wendell Berry has a lot to offer uh, in terms of reconnecting and reappropriating our connection with the earth. But Wendell Berry says something very, very um, uh, pertinent here when he uh, says that the separation of the soul from the body and from the world is no disease of the fringe. No aberration, just something that somebody, you know, somebody made a stupid mistake, but it is not characteristic of the way the world has been seen. But it is a fracture that runs through the mentality of religion like a geologic fault. And this rift in the mentality of religion continues to characterize the modern mind, no matter how secular or worldly it becomes. So you would have thought, you know, post-Descartes or, you know, into the modern era, that we would in some ways have remedied this problem. But Wendell Berry says, no, it is really, we've just made it permanent. It's still there. There is no, there is no, no, no uh, remedy. And, and, and the religious uh, contribution to that is pervasive. I'll skip this statement here by the German philosopher Feuerbach, but I'll just say what, in very short, in a sort of short way, what he says in a, in a uh, abbreviated way, what he says. He says that when you look at Christianity, the body language of Christianity is that it would rather that there was no world. That's the body language of Christianity. That's Feuerbach looking back at the world and the Christian view of the world that the God of Christianity would rather that there was no world and we'd better, you know, we might as well get rid of it. So there is then in, in a sort of, in a sort of uh, umbrella sense, there is a, there is a, the world has always had a precarious state. Now does the Sabbath have anything to say about the way we perceive the world? Does the Sabbath has anything to offer, in ter- you know, as a, as a kind of remedy or as a so, sort of corrective to that kind of, 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 uh, of, uh, of problem? Okay, the second, another one here, uh, alienation from non-human creation. Human alienation from, uh, hum- uh, by human to non-human creation. And Harvey has already, uh, already touched on this. And of course, of course, the world, the world's energy supply to do, you know, the oil, the oil equation is also relevant to, uh, to this, uh, this issue. That the, the enormous increase in meat consumption, the world's total meat supply was 71 million tons in 1961. In 2007, it was estimated to be 284 million tons. Per capita consumption has more than doubled over that period, and so on. So, <clears throat> you know, this, this is a, a topic that is dear to my, my heart because the, the, way, the way, what has it taken to enable this kind of, of, of meat consumption, it has, enab- it has taken, it, it has been necessary to completely change the way human beings relate to non-human beings. We've had to put animals into factories. We've had to completely disassociate, you know, to sort of break the cycles, the natural sort of life of these, of these beings, these created beings. And, and we have had to, and we've done this because they now have, 
their the, the raison d'être, the reason to exist, is surely is only to become, uh, you know, meat on the plate for for human consumption. Again, does the Sabbath have anything to offer a world that is constituting itself like that? Does it have any sort of remedy in it? Is there any sort of potential in the Sabbath to address that kind of, of, of relentless, uh, relentless change? These are the continents that are the heaviest in terms of, of, of meat production. And they are, uh, yes, what are they? You tell me what they are these continents. They are industrialized and they are also they are also the countries where Christianity is in, in is ascendant in, in, in many ways. I mean the, the the part of the world that is best off is you know not where the where Christianity is most entrenched. So so you're seeing that Christianity, if we, put, if we postulate that this is a, an alienation of sort, then Christianity has not remedied the alienation between human and non-human creation because that alienation is actually most forcefully projected exactly where Christianity has, had its, has made its, its greatest impact. Or you, you, do, do you disagree? Do you wish to, to correct me on that? You know, there is a huge increase in, in China today. China has adopted uh, uh, methods of, of uh, industrial methods of food production or, or meat production, just like the U.S. And China has the greatest consumption now of uh, of pork, of uh, not per capita. It's much less per capita than the U.S. But total consumption of pork in China is the highest in the world today. But that's because they have Lots of people, you know, the population is higher there. So <clears throat> now, looking away from the from the uh, uh, the ethical aspect of how we treat animals, which is really where you see the the alienation the most, we can just see it. Look at this in terms of self-interest. So. What did you did you expect? <clears throat> did you expect the the the, the uh, this representation of of the things that contribute to global warming? Did you expect it to look like this? Did you expect such a representation? Which is number two here on the list? The second most uh, the second biggest contributor to global warming in terms of human contribution to global warming is livestock production, beef, chicken, and pork. Did you know that that was the second largest contributor? Well, many of you did, because you, you're very proud of that, that, <laughs> that, we, that we're sort of on the good, uh, that we're on the good side of history <laughs> on, that, on that point. But you might have thought that transportation would have been bigger, that it was the car you drive that would have been the worst. But it isn't. The, it is not the cars we drive, even though that is also a major factor. It is really the food we eat that that contributes uh, contributes more. And so, so uh, these are these are significant significant things. <coughs> a person from this community, I might just mention his name, uh, a neurosurgeon who works in this hospital, Walter Johnson. He invited me on Thursday night to. Um, 
to a lecture at, in at Claremont, at Pomona College at Claremont, by Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben is considered to be one of the foremost uh, environmentalists. He is one of your friends, I, w I would think. <laughs> yeah. So Bill McKibben was there and he was lecturing. It was quite amazing because there were just, I think there might have been between 1,500 and 2,000 people in attendance. It was amazing. And I would say that at least 1,200 of those people were young people. They were college-age people. And they clearly belonged to a community where this was not a new topic because Bill McKibben, he's a very soft-spoken speaker. He gave a kind of like a fire, fireside chat of sorts. And I could tell that those young people, they were fully engaged. They knew which melody he was playing. They knew the song he was singing. They were part of it. They were interested. And he was talking about the world and about, you know, the, he, he's, he's the founder of a, of a movement uh, that calls themselves the 350 movement, 350.com. Uh, 350 is CO2 levels, 350 parts per million, which is thought to be the critical level for CO2 in the atmosphere. And, and he, they want to bring it down to that. It is now above 390. Anyway, uh, you know, he, he is a, a person who is, who is uh, concerned about that. And I thought this, the, the atmosphere in that audience was really electric. I was amazed. And I thought we could not have done that in our community because our community does not know that melody. It does not know that song. It is not part of that concern. It has not, uh, not been been uh, thought of, even though this community, with its commitment to a non-meat non diet, actually could make quite a contribution and quite an impact in the world if one sort of got some traction for the notion that, in fact, the food we eat is hugely important to, this, to the state of the climate we live in. Again, talking about human contributions to climate change. So that was, I thought, quite interesting. Uh, I think we can skip this, but you, you can look at it. Uh, this is from uh, a slide that the New York Times had a few years ago. Again, so delineating CO2, uh, uh, the CO2 uh, share, contribution of CO2 to atmospheric pollution from various food sources that we have. And this is a candle that is, being, that is burning at both ends because you have a huge increase in greenhouse gases from emissions from cattle. Ammonia and methane are much stronger greenhouse gases than CO2. And then we also have, because there is an increase in meat consumption, you have to, uh, there is a big inroads in, in the tropical forests, in, in the Amazon, in Brazil especially, but we're clearing land. We're clearing land that is sort of land that would be part of cleaning up, you know, the environment is now being sacrificed to change our, 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 our world, as it were, or our food habits. It's, it's enormous. You know, the, the numbers, the numbers of, of uh, non-human beings, the numbers of animals that are being raised for food, it's an enormous number. And it is not something, you know, it's not something that... Now, we still in this institution that is committed to, to uh, lifestyle, we have tended to personalize this and make it a health issue and talk about cholesterol levels. 
and and you know please you know talk about it it's all right it's not a bad uh, bad subject it, it, there is science to support it but let's just say that there is a there is a there is a meta perspective here that is bigger than that and the reasons for for these types of commitments maybe they should change or maybe they should be updated somewhat that's what we want to say yeah here is one thing that might escape us, and maybe I'm just curious to see if you think the Sabbath has anything to offer on this problem. The question is uh, the alienation in the world, our alienation from one another. And I'm, that's, of course, a very uh, way, a soft way of talking about the resources uh, used in this world on, on military expenditures. Uh, and again, you can find, I, I just Googled world armaments. That's what I did. World armaments, I Googled that, and, and I got my lap full, so I quickly shut it down. <laughs> I, and, uh, but you can get, get an idea. The enormous resources that are used in this world, and maybe we have forgotten, maybe we have forgotten that there are armaments in the world that can completely make life on this planet extinct, in not as global warming or other things can do, but you know, if for some reason, if somebody does something that triggers, you know, this uh, uh, a real sort of clash of of arms here, that's it. That's the end. The the fire that falls down from heaven in the book of Revelation could, in fact, fall down from heaven in ways that we have a lot to do with. In some ways, can you see it? You know, and we have seen seen, the, seen the, the, the sort of writing on the wall there. The numbers are staggering. The numbers are staggering. And, and uh, here, uh, another representation. Yes, Harvey. The cost of a single aircraft carrier would vaccinate every child on planet Earth. So I want to repeat that. The cost of an aircraft carrier could vaccinate every child on the earth if you transmu- uh, tran- sort of do it in healthcare equivalents, you know. So, yeah. So we're seeing, you know, for some reason, our perception of the world is in a certain way that it has, it has been seen right to commit resources, enormous resources to developing arms. And, and, and the world leader here, of course, is the United States, uh, because the United States spends uh, as much on arms as the 13 next countries on the list to, uh, combined. The U.S. expenditures for, military, for the military is the, as much as the, uh, as the combined of the 13 next countries on the list. Again, I want to ask, does the Sabbath have anything to do with this issue? The Sabbath, is it a peacemaking resource? Is there a commitment in the Sabbath that in some ways addresses these kinds of priorities and, and, and the kind of role, the kind of, uh, you know, what's the, what's, what's the sort of body image of the Sabbath in, 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 in terms of these uh, this kind of reality. Uh, I'll be prese- I'm presenting at a, a paper in a few weeks in San Francisco at the Society of Biblical Literature. I was invited to give this talk. There are some Adventists involved in, in this, this group, but there, there are other people too, not just Adventists, and there are some Jewish, Jewish uh, uh, contributors there. And the topic 
assigned to us was the Sabbath and peace, or the Sabbath and peacemaking. And, and uh, uh, I have not dealt with that topic in the book. I have not written on that in the book. But I am a little wiser now having thought through that topic, and, and, and maybe there would be an opportunity to share that at some point. But let's just do the numbers. Of course, <clears throat> then this one, which is also something that, that we could take in many directions, I think the main, the main thing we should take, uh, you know, from the from the Holocaust and from the the alienation of Christians from Jews, is really not primarily that alienation. I would say it should remind us that there is evil in the world, and that the evil that is in the world cannot be explained only in human terms. There must be something else stirring it up to enable evil on the scale that was seen during the Holocaust. And of course, this is not the only genocidal event. Uh, I read somewhere in, I think it was in the New Yorker, about the genocide in Rwanda. There was an interview with somebody who had been part of the genocide in Rwanda. Ten years after the genocide, he went back. This person had been leading out in some of the some of the groups that have go, had gone out there to kill. And he said that when we were doing this, we felt that we were working under inspiration. We went to, about it happily, as though inspired, you know, to, that this was a worthy cause. You know, they did not see themselves as common criminals or murderers. They saw themselves as part of something that was, you know, quite, quite noble. So it is a reminder that, that there is evil in the world, but there is also alienation from the Jews, the Christian alienation from the Jews. The discontinuity in the story of faith, where you transition from Christianity, I mean from Judaism to Christianity, because the God worshipped by Christians is which God? There is success for the God of the Old Testament, isn't there? The God worshipped in the New Testament, the God worshipped in Christianity is the God of Abraham. It's the God of the Old Testament. It's monotheism. There is continuity on that level. How so could there be such a terrible discontinuity, such a turning against that community of faith? You know, the Abraham you know, descendants of Abraham, from John Chrysostom, who is the, Chrysostom means golden mouth. He was a very clever speaker. He could really speak well. He was a, he was a leader first in Antioch and then I think later in Constantinople. And there is a collection of sermons preserved from Chrysostom. And you can read a little bit about it in chapter 16 in the book if you want to. Uh, look at it there. There is a little about John Chrysostom and his vitriol, the kind of scorn he heaps on the Jews, some of whom actually are attendees in his own church, and his own church members are actually attending the synagogues of the Jews. This kind of, of vitriol that he heaps on them, it's terrible. The Crusades, they all had pogroms against the Jews. The Black Death, they blamed it on the Jews. The Christians blamed it on the Jews. And then here is this statement from Luther, written 
I think I want to find excuses for Luther to say such a terrible thing as he said. It was late in his career. Luther was, had, put, uh, had gout. He had gouty arthritis, and maybe he had a terrible attack of gout you know, when he said this. But look at what he said. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? This is Martin Luther. This is not Adolf Hitler. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? I shall give you my sincere advice. First, to set fire to their synagogues or schools, and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or a cinder of them. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and of his Christians. Do you want to weep when you hear that? Do you want to weep? You know, don't you think that is terrible? And that is the alienation. That is how. And there was a, Luther actually had a friend. He had a rabbi who was a good friend of his. And there is a wonderful book written in German about the Luther and the Jews. And this rabbi came to Luther afterwards and he saw what Luther had done in this pamphlet on the Jews and their lies. He was just heartbroken because he had thought that it, that it wasn't, you know, so, 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 uh, so bad. Yes. <laughs> I listened to a lecture series um, from Philip Curry uh, from the teaching company. He's a Luther scholar. And um, he indicated that Luther, for a period of time, actively tried to reach out to the Jews and held that hope. And it just makes me think that a lot of times um, how hatred um, is born out of disappointment and the kind of threat to, to what we hold dear. Now, that's an excellent point, and I think it is true that Luther had actually been thinking to evangelize the Jews, and, and they were the sort of last holdout because you have a, you know, that, that time in history, and, and throughout Christian history, we, one has loved uniformity of belief. And Luther, the early Luther, is quite good at, at thinking through that you could actually, with Protestantism, not have uniformity of belief. Early Luther in the, 19, in the 1520s, he talks quite eloquently about uh, sort of, you know, we have to go where the chips fall with Protestantism. But later, there is going to be uniformity of belief, and we're all going to be Lutherans, or we're all going to be Catholics, which it depends on where you live. And the Jews, of course, they stick out like a sore thumb in this kind of a, this, you know, this lack of uniformity. And yes, maybe he wants them to bring them to believe to belief in Christ. And then if they say no, no thank you, that's it. This is the reaction. And, and yes, it is, it, it's a long story. It's a long, a long, a long chapter in, 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 that he wrote in, in 1543. So there is alienation there. Yes, Luther did believe in freedom of conscience and practiced it and claimed it for himself in the early part of his career. He did it very well and very eloquently. But... Ten years down the line, it's hard to believe in liberty of conscience when it is somebody else's conscience that you are defending, you see. And that was the problem. But that is kind of part, it's part of it. Again, does the Sabbath have anything to offer in this alienation? Could there be a coming together? Could there even be seen 
that there could be that there could be some ecumenical potential to the Sabbath, uh, a sort of retracing of our steps in the his, in the history of of the Christian journey that would remedy this, and that the Sabbath would in fact you know be be a beneficiary there. Well, the final one, and I think uh, uh, this is just just a very superficial superficial take on it, uh, but. How do you do it with the theory of evolution? What does this theory of evolution do to our paradigm or an a, a Sabbatarian paradigm? Because you know, whatever we think the state of that subject is today, originally, Darwinian evolution was seen as a way to not just explain you know, how things happened, but to explain how things happened without needing God. That it was in some ways an atheistic project. It wasn't, you know, militantly atheistic. It has become, uh, you know, some, some Darwinians are much more militant now maybe than, than Darwin was. This is a quotation from Jacques Monod. Jacques Monod won the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology in 1968. His grandfather was a Protestant preacher in France, and you will remember that Protestantism is not strong in France. So, so this, he comes from a, an exceptional background. But Jacques Monod is, is, wasn't a believer as far as I know. I know he wasn't. But he won the Nobel Prize, and he wrote this book, Chance and Necessity, and that was published in English in, in 1970, Listen to what he says. The universe was not pregnant with life, nor the biosphere with man. Our number came up in a Monte Carlo game. Is it surprising that, like the person who has just made a million at the casino, we should feel strange and a little unreal? I have known this statement, and I could have read it by heart, because I, I read the Jacques Monod many years ago in the 70s. <coughs> I'm old. I've been around for a while. <coughs> and these things preoccupied me a great deal in those days. It still does to some extent. Now, does, it, does the Sabbath, you know, how do you, surely the Sabbath cannot be compatible with atheistic evolution. How can it, can it be con- compatible? Does this, how, how, does it, how do we do it if we were to do it a theistic you know, evolution? Is, there any, is that unproblematic or is that, is that also a challenge? See, what, what Jacques Monod is saying is that the world as we know it, we could have that kind of world and be the kind of people we are, even if there is no God, even if there is nothing there, even if there is no no, no, no creator. And then, uh, you know, that we are kind of an accidental child of evolution. That there was, that we, in some ways, maybe were, a, were an unwanted child in some ways. Or, or it wasn't, you know, there was, no, there was no paternal or maternal face into which human beings looked at first. You know, to what extent, in what way... You know, does that work with, with, uh, with uh, the paradigm of, of evolution? No, I would, I, I'm not planning to make that uh, a major uh, issue here. I know it is discussed by, uh, in other, uh, other uh, uh, contexts on our campus. It seems to me it is not completely unproblematic. So, 
to, to include that in our thinking. So <clears throat> what does the Sabbath do in a world as Roger finds it? Uh, where you are kind of coming to a tipping point in one particular, on one particular uh, area. What does it do and how we relate to the world? You know, the, uh, Melissa's point on, on looking out there and, and still finding a reason to love the world. And then about, about God in the world and what sort of God is it? Uh, and what sort of God will the Sabbath keeper uh, be projecting uh, in, in, in this world. So uh, let me just ask you, does the Sabbath have anything to offer this world? Uh, if we were just breaking it down in this way, does the Sabbath have anything to offer? What's your thinking? Does the Sabbath have a future in a world like ours? Is it, a, is it a strong card? Is it a, does the Sabbath keeper play a strong card in this kind of world? Or is it, is it kind of, we're relegated to, to, uh, to be a factor on the periphery of concern? It seems to me the Sabbath could really speak to the world as we find it in major ways. And we'll take it from there. Uh, the next uh, time we will uh, do the first Sabbath text in the Old Testament. And I uh, invite you to read the first couple of chapters in Genesis. Uh, and we will uh, be doing more text-based uh, things. But we thank our presenters this morning, the, the pictures they shared. And, and uh, we will not forget those those. Uh, uh, perspectives as we uh, cover various topics in this uh, journey about the Sabbath. Thank you very much.